Welcome to Stories After Midnight. The story we will be reading today is called Our Team Descended Nine Miles Into the Earth. People Should Know What We Found by D. McKay, 1981, from Reddit. I really hope you enjoy this story, and if you do, stick around to the end where I talk some more about random stuff. Anyway, huge shout out to my patrons for making this episode possible. Let's get started. I was recruited for the project in August 2018. I just completed my 20th year in the military, 15th in Special Forces, and for the first time was considering leaving. Lost friends along the way, and the last of my family had just passed. Felt like it was time. I never hid how I was feeling, and I think people understood. On August 12, 2018, I received a message from my group commander telling me to be ready for a private video call at 1300. No further info. This in itself was unusual, and the identity of the caller made it more so. Not every day you hear from a retired rear admiral and former head of NSWC. It was a short conversation, best of my recollection, it went as follows. I've changed all the names below for obvious reasons. Admiral, sir. Matthew, been a long time. Condolences on your recent loss. How are you holding up? Well, as can be expected, sir. Good to hear that. Now, time is a factor here, so let's get straight to it. I've heard you may be leaving us, and in your position, I can't blame you. A lot of lucrative offers out there for a man of your talents. I believe I may have one that will suit you. To be honest, I didn't know what to say to this. In my experience, this wasn't how things were done. He continued. I was contacted this morning by someone I respect, former ODNI, to ask if I had a suitable candidate for a team he is heading. To be clear, this is an SAP with a blank check, run in conjunction with some of our private contractors and assets. You were the obvious choice. No family, I thought. Halfway out the door already. If you're interested, I'll pass you through to another call with the project leads. Give these men your consideration, son. This is a unique opportunity to serve your country and be well rewarded. Can't deny I was intrigued. As much as I'd been towing with the prospect of civilian life, it wasn't a comfortable feeling. I'll admit, it scared me a little. The fear of being without purpose. At least, that's how I imagined it at the time. Yes or no, Matthew? Uh, yes, sir. Wise decision. In that case, my involvement ends and this discussion never took place. Understood? Understood, sir. He nodded to me and the screen went blank. My connection was routed to a platform I didn't recognize. In the following minutes, I received download requests for some heavy-duty encryption and security software. Once they completed, a fresh call screen opened. There were two others present, but no video or ID. Their audio carried a mild distortion, likely some form of voice masking. The conversation only lasted two minutes. They gave me a brief overview of the project and what would be required of me. Dates and times, officially we would be employed by a private entity, as there could be no paper trail, no traceable association to any branch of government. Plausible deniability in case of a catastrophic intelligence leak. The pay was more than adequate, and my immediate discharge would be facilitated. What wasn't discussed were any details of the operation. They simply told me I'd be briefed on site. The call ended, and one of those new security programs kicked in, cleaning itself and any trace of the last 15 minutes from my system. That was how it began for me. I worked within this section's purview for the next four years, 
until I accepted the truth. We all know there are crimes committed in the name of our country, all manner of evils concealed by those in power. And my own silence was a part of that. As long as I kept their secrets, I was as guilty as they were. So I decided to tell my story. I've lost everything because of that choice, but I won't stop. I'll post the truth wherever I can until they find me. There's an old quote which stuck with me through the years, spoken nine centuries ago by the King of Jerusalem. I think of it damn near every night, words rising up in the quiet moments. As I drive through the night watching my mirror for a tale, as I give another false name at another cheap motel, as I sleep alone in the woods, a gun in my hand, I find myself whispering it, a prayer and a mantra and a curse. When you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus, or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. Indeed it will not. So here we are. If you are hoping for scientific and technical detail on what I saw, sorry but I'm not that guy. I'm no PhD and all relevant intelligence was on a need-to-know basis. Compartmentalization is key to security. There are thousands of people all over the US who have worked on beyond top secret projects and never had any idea what they were a part of. In the most basic scenario, think of it like this. You need someone to drive a truck. That doesn't mean they need to know what's in it. Even the information I did learn of the project and its history were limited. I received some general scene setting in early briefings and picked up the rest over time. To the best of my knowledge, the site was discovered through irregularities on standard seismic scans. Some bright spark matched the coordinates with recorded satellite interference, then took a field trip to check it out. What they discovered worked its way up the ladder, until someone senior enough made the decision to lock it down and bury everyone involved in the NDAs. The land surrounding the anomaly was bought up through private third parties and a mining concern created as cover. August 15th, I took a flight out of San Diego, arriving for pickup around three hours later. After two decades of traveling overseas, this was a genuine pleasure. I was collected by another ex-Special Forces operative. Let's call him Mark. We drove eight hours from city to suburb to empty plain, arriving in the mountains after dark. Mark wasn't much of a talker, but neither was I, so we got along just fine. After an hour of winding through moonlit forests, we reached our destination at 2 a.m. Mark had a key code for the first gate, a vehicle-sized entrance and high perimeter fence. The road took us to a complex of buildings nestled on the mountainside. We were met there by two armed guards who escorted us from then on. They led us inside one of the larger structures and pointed out where our living quarters were located. They took us down a narrow set of stairs to a cold and empty basement. There were steel double doors built into the wall maybe 20 feet wide, which accessed the interior of the mountain itself. We entered what had once been a natural cave network, now enlarged and extended through the recent excavation. A single powerful LED strip ran down the center of the ceiling, and there were cameras at every corner. It was a five-minute walk through those stone passages before we reached the final checkpoint. This door was airtight, six-inch thick steel and must have weighed the better part of a ton. On the other side was the project control center. It was a relatively basic setup. One equipment tower with computer stations on either side, a generator and several stacks of containers. On the opposite side of this area, I saw a secondary tight steel door. There were only three people present, 
First was a tall, thin male in his 50s who introduced himself as Adam, the on-site lead and, I suspected, one of the men I had spoken to by video call. Next was Joanna, an intelligence analyst and agency liaison. Last was Luke, who would be part of the security detail with Mark and myself. There were never many people present. In fact, I rarely saw more than half a dozen at any one time. The remaining three members of the team arrived in the next hour, and our initial briefing took place shortly after. Adam called everyone together and we introduced ourselves. I'd be leading the security team, and when there were no comms with base, assume overall command. Mark and Luke completed my squad. John, a gray-haired physicist, would lead the science team. Peter was a geologist and the youngest of the group at 36. Eve was their third, a biologist with a deep, southern accent. Regards the team's numbers, in particular the 3 and 3 split, that was a concern. As far as I'd been led to believe, this was primarily a military operation. I had no idea what we would be facing, so I didn't want civilians on the first trip down. I was overruled. Adam never said it aloud, but we were clearly under serious time pressure. I didn't discover why until several years later. The next morning, Joanna took us through to see the object which had brought us all there. The anomaly, she called it. Not going to lie, it wasn't much to look at. Not at first. It occupied the center of another excavated room, surrounded by an array of monitoring equipment. From a distance, I thought it was just a hole in the floor. Nothing more than a tunnel with oddly colored sides. But on approach, I realized it was actually separate from the rock. A pale tube 15 feet in diameter, rigidly extending a few inches out from the stone encasing it. The material which formed it possessed a faint luminescence, a milky light which swelled or shrank in each passing moment. Despite this, when I stared down inside, I found the interior plunged rapidly into total darkness. At the mouth there was also a mild disturbance in the air, tiny waves of heat and humidity which buffeted my skin. The surface of the tunnel wall appeared to be in constant motion, reflecting and distorting any light which fell on it. The on-site team referred to this structure as a biofilm, though they never successfully acquired a sample to confirm its nature. It was only two inches at its thickest point, yet penetrating it in any way had proven impossible. Nothing was able to pierce the surface. Pneumatic drills, graphene blades, and even an infrared solid-state laser all failed. Force or radiation of any kind was almost instantly dissipated throughout the biofilm. The only measurable effect of any of these tests was a temporary increase in luminescence. As for the interior, they tried sending drones down in early July. Both units were lost to electromagnetic interference in the first 50 feet, dropping lifeless into the dark pit like pennies in a well. To be fair to the team involved, there was no screwing around on the third attempt. They lowered a heavily reinforced and insulated instrument platform on steel wire cabling, the kind of unit that could survive a volcano or the ocean floor. That worked better until they ran out of cable at two miles. Next attempt reached seven miles. The readings these units returned were unusual to say the least. Inside the tunnel there were no variation in temperature, humidity, or atmospheric pressure, none whatsoever. 32.3 degrees Celsius and humid as a rainforest every inch of the way down to seven miles. Now, 
Just for comparison, the land outside the caves averaged 12 degrees that month and dust dry. The air inside the tunnel was also tested for airborne toxins and other trace materials. This result was even stranger. There was nothing detected, not so much as a microbe. It was as if the atmosphere inside remained completely sterilized despite being open to the air. August 10th, the sensor platform was lowered for a third time. This attempt halted at nine miles. They had found something. We had set our descent for August 17th at 0800. A lift had been constructed the previous day after a final delivery of equipment. It looked reassuringly sturdy and had a max carry weight of 20,000 pounds, so we would be well within safety parameters. The miles of cable had been arriving for days and were laid out everywhere you looked. Our gear was all excellent quality, third generation night vision, PAP respirators, though there was no indication yet we would require them, custom-made Kevlar composite body armor, standard Glock 19 sidearms and modified MK-17 scars for the security detail. Not everyone's favorite weapon, but I never had an issue. We also used an interlinked video comm system where everything we saw and heard was recorded and could be viewed in real time or replayed by any other member. This system also included location trackers built into our helmets. If I was going to be petty, which I am, the chest rig had a damn stupid design and the pockets weren't big enough, but no serious complaints. The lift had two sections. At the base was a detachable cargo area which we had packed with floodlights and generators. Above was the main carriage, which would hold ourselves and all our other equipment and supplies. A big part of that weight was devoted to fluids in expectation of high temperature and humidity. Mark, Luke, and myself had been through hotter with heavier gear, but the three civilians were likely to struggle. The six of us entered the lift at 0755 for final checks. I received the go-ahead on schedule, locked the gate in place, and we began our descent. The bioluminescence faded and our own, harsher lights took over. Even Peter were visibly nervous, fidgeting and whispering to each other. I remember looking up and watching the circle of light above shrink as we left the surface behind. The lift descended at 15 miles per hour, which gave an estimated travel time of 45 minutes with regular stops. Comm links to base were useless by the two-mile point and never improved. Our direct links between each other remained viable with only minor interference. Adam had warned us to expect headaches, fatigue, and sudden rises in body temperature due to the electromagnetic radiation, and though we all felt those effects to varying degrees, it was never as severe as originally feared. If I recall correctly, we made our stops every two miles. John would check the atmosphere stats each time before we proceeded. Eve made fresh attempts to take samples of the biofilm without success. Little could be seen through the tunnel walls, but our geologist remained enthused. He told me something about basalt and water-bearing minerals, which I'm sure would have been fascinating if I understood it. We reached six miles at 34 minutes. The only sound was the movement of the lift cables and our own breathing. The only light our flickering lamps. When we passed 7.7 miles, John asked for our attention. We're now deeper than humans have ever drilled. At this depth, we would expect temperatures of 180 Celsius, 356 Fahrenheit. He held up his thermometer reading and smiled. But it's still 32.3, zero variation. Extraordinary. 
We continued down, steadily and without incident. Mark and Luke were quiet, and professional as expected. The three members of the science team handled the conditions better than I could have hoped. At 43 minutes, I called for everyone to put on their breathing apparatus, as planned. We had air quality monitored in the shaft, but beyond that was a mystery. No one spoke as those final seconds came and went. We arrived on schedule, the tunnel walls vanishing on all sides as we descended into an immense and silent darkness. I slowed the lift to a halt and peered over the edge with my torch on full. The last probe's data indicated a solid surface that appeared to be accurate. I dropped down onto striated rock covered by biofilm, no different to the walls of the tunnel we had just left. In fact, the biofilm extended unbroken in every direction, suggesting we were simply in a swelling of the tunnel, as opposed to an entirely new section. It was, and I cannot stress this enough, the deepest pitch black I've ever experienced. As powerful as they were, our torches illuminated such narrow bands that they felt almost useless. I've no doubt the silence played a part in this impression. There was no sound but that which we made ourselves, not so much as a trickle of water. I imagined I could feel the weight of all those miles above bearing down, billions of tons of stone between us and the light. From the faces of the others, I don't think I was the only one. When the six of us had exited, we began setup unpacking the floodlights, generators, and other supplies. I retested our location trackers and local team comm network, flicking through each member's video and audio, and found it working with minimal issues. I tried the Gen 3 night vision, but there was little to see other than an empty expanse, quiet and waiting. The infrared setting was useless due to interference. When the air quality checks were complete, we removed our breathing apparatus. There was still no detectable variation in atmospheric conditions and no sign of toxins or other biohazards. Mark found the remains of the two drones that had fallen weeks before and packaged them for return. We had brought a fresh drone, but it could only manage a few seconds of flight before interference killed it. John began work on alternatives, imaging systems that could provide an advanced picture of our surroundings. He called us over 30 minutes later. On his screen, the scan data fed back rendering a 3D model of the cavern's interior. We stood in the basin of a huge ovoid, three miles long, two miles wide, and one mile tall, and there was something else in the center of the chamber, beginning just 100 feet above us. What the hell is that? said Mark. I suspect he spoke for all of us. In the silence, over our heads, a gigantic cylinder ran the full length of the expanse. If the imaging was correct, it was almost two miles long, and a diameter of half a mile. I found myself involuntarily glancing up, though I knew my eyes couldn't penetrate the darkness. It isn't attached to anything. John tapped the image on his screen. This artifact above us, it, it isn't touching the surrounding structure, not anywhere. No visible support, it's just, it's just floating, for want of a better word. It only took us a couple of minutes to angle some floodlights directly upwards, then zoom our cameras in on the subject. We could see it up there, though there was no great detail for me to describe. All the light revealed was a dull metallic surface, the smooth skin of the sleeping giant hanging over us. All right, I checked the time and decided to push on. Let's get back to it. We've got a schedule to keep. 
As we worked, I noticed the bioluminescence had picked up around the lift, in both surface area and intensity. I didn't know whether to be unnerved or thankful. It took us two hours to set up the field cables and lighting. When we were complete, almost a quarter of the chamber floor had enough illumination for us to find our way without night vision. The lamps still flickered, but we would have to live with it. I'd created and overlaid a location grid of the modules Jonna produced. Once everyone confirmed access to this on our headsets, we agreed to regroup at base camp. The walk back was when Eve fell. I heard her intake of breath and curse on the audio, then Luke helping her up. I switched to her video feed on my own headset. Eve, you alright? What happened? Sorry. She sounded more irritated than hurt. Tripped. I watched the live feed as the biologist dusted herself down and began to examine the ground around her feet. It was as flat and featureless as any other part of the biofilm. I definitely tripped on something sharp, she said. It was right here. Luke? I saw him helping her search. Didn't see anything, sir, he replied. I'm not imagining it, she continued. I know what I felt. I rewound her footage and played it back. Eve had been watching where she was going and I couldn't see a reason for the fall. Nothing on your cam. Luke didn't see it. Nothing there now. Let's put it down as a stumble and move on. I didn't stumble. I could hear the frustration in her voice and saw on her live feed that she had sat back down. As I watched, she rolled up a trouser leg and focused the visual on her shin. An ugly cut was bleeding just beneath her knee. Okay, Eve. Point made. I'm not doubting you. But for now, there's nothing else we can do. Let's get back to base, patch that up, and stick to our schedule. If there's time, we'll return to this area to investigate. Mark it on your map grid. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. I've heard that or said it myself just about every op debrief I was ever a part of. I could have stopped the mission right there, pulled everyone back to the lift, and got out of there. Could have. But I didn't. We topped up on fluids and then set out on our assigned paths. I led Team 1, myself and Peter, on perimeter recon. Team 2, Mark and John, would go straight down the center of the cavern beneath the artifact. Team 3, Luke and Eve, would remain at base until another squad returned. I estimated my team would take 4 hours with a couple of breaks. Mark and John, 3 hours. As we approached the midway point of the cavern, the floodlights had long faded behind us. The weight of darkness seemed to press in, a vast emptiness swallowing the sound of our steps. I found myself getting jittery, genuinely nervous for the first time in years. Sweat stung my eyes as I checked and rechecked our location. When we stopped to drink, I activated my mic. Updates, Team 2. Fourth stop, Mark replied, taking more readings from the artifact. I heard John's voice in the background, then he clicked on his own mic and repeated himself so I could hear. The electromagnetic interference is from the cylinder. Almost certain of that now. It appears weakest at the midpoint, rising in intensity at either end. Still to confirm that, of course. Alright, Team 3. No issues. Luke's voice, calm and assured. Completed equipment diagnosis. Good to go when needed. I noted comms quality degrading with distance. It seemed likely we'd lose contact with Luke and Eve by the time we reached the far end of the chamber. My train of thought was broken by Peter's hand on my arm. I turned and saw him pointing ahead. I see a light, he said. Grid said 109, maybe? Or 110. I peered into the distance where he indicated, 
There was definite illumination there, a dull red which varied in intensity. I flicked the comms back on. Hey, this is Team 1. We may have found something. Going to investigate. Grid Z-109. The glow increased in size and strength as we approached. When we got within 50 feet, it became apparent it was radiating from the biofilm wall, a fluctuating crimson shining through the material of the chamber. It was moving, I realized, flowing slowly down the wall and across the floor. It's lava. Peter was smiling broadly, his face bathed in red light, fascinated and amused in equal measure. He stepped forward and reached out for the glowing surface, placing his hand against it before I could stop him. It's cool, he said with a laugh, waving his hand back at me. No heat transfer at all. That close, we could see the biofilm itself shimmering, whatever substance it was made of, redirecting and distributing the heat and pressure from the molten rock. As we stood and watched, the flow surged beneath our feet, quickly growing to many times its original area on brightness, engulfing us both in its luminescence. My goodness, look at that. I followed Peter's gaze and my breath caught in my throat. The lava cast its light across the chamber, caressing all before it in a sea of dark fire. High above us, the gigantic artifact hung suddenly revealed and silent and alien. This is Team 2, John's voice interrupted us. We found a discontinuity in the cylinder surface. It's a narrow, circular channel, faint light emanating from it. Approximate radius of 40 feet. Purely speculation, but perhaps an entrance of some sort? I tried to reply, but a burst of static left the audio crackling. When I switched to John's video feed, it flickered too badly to see anything. Look, said Peter behind me. The lava is, is cooling against the biofilm, fading already. I mean, that was 700 degrees at minimum. Uh, Team 1? Matthew? John's voice came through again. This is Team 1, I replied. Go ahead. Uh, Mark is missing. I turned and he was gone just seconds ago. I can't see him and he isn't answering on comms. I pulled up the location trackers. Mark's had vanished and his video and audio feed were dead. His gun is here, John said. I switched to his video feed and saw the physicist pick up the MK-17. It's just lying here. John, listen to me. I pulled up Mark's video history as I spoke. Do not move. Stay right where you are and await instruction. Mark's video cut out 90 seconds earlier. One frame he was watching John walk ahead of him. Next frame the signal was gone. I ignored my rising heart rate and focused. Hey, John, you read me? Yes, I I'm here, I hear you. Stay on comms. Do not leave this line. We will come to you. I have you at grid M101, correct? Uh, yeah, yes, that sounds correct. Put all your lights on full and stay calm. We're on route. I realized I had already started towards him, and Peter was running behind me to catch up. Team 1 to Team 3. We may have an issue. Mark is MIA, heading to last known location double time. Be ready to move if we require assistance. No problem, Luke's voice, standing by. Seconds later, Mark's locator returned on tracking, but his video and audio remained out. According to the signal, he was only 30 feet from his last known position. John, I need you to do something for me. Alright, are you close? Four minutes. Look on your personal tracker. 
Marks his back, northwest of you, very close. See it? Yeah, I see the signal. Shine your lights in that direction for me. I watched his feet as he turned to the correct heading and aimed his torches. What's that? He said, no longer able to hide the tremor in his voice. I zoomed in the picture to be certain. It's Mark's helmet, I replied, quickening my pace. Don't move. Two minutes. I heard Peter's ragged breathing behind me as he struggled to keep pace. I remember calling back to him that we were almost there. Matthew? John's voice, wavering. I... I... I think... His camera went blank, and his locator vanished. Marks disappeared with it. I halted, weapon raised. Peter missed my hand signal and almost ran into me, clutching my pack to stop himself from falling. John? I called over the comms. There was no reply. We were close, but I couldn't see anything ahead, or hear anything other than Peter's breathing. Mark? John, anyone read me? Darkness closed in around us once more, invisible arms tightening their grasp. Decisions. I had potentially lost two of my team. Regroup or search. With so little idea of what had happened, either could be dangerous. Had Mark cracked under the pressure, wandered off, then returned and taken John? It didn't seem likely. The man was a professional, as experienced as I was. Was it two accidents back-to-back -back which cut off all contact? That seemed even less likely. What did that leave? Hostiles? Team 1 to Team 3. Luke, we have a problem here. Have you been listening? Yes, sir, every word. What's your situation? I was just about to call you, sir. The comms crackled as he spoke, but I could still make him out. May have a problem here, too. I'm reading some failed floodlights on Team 2's route. Started right at the perimeter and working back toward us at base. Three down now. Any ideas, sir? Nothing to do with us. I checked the system and he was right. All the outages were in a straight line from the furthest edge of lights toward the lift. A fourth flashed out as I watched. I could feel things spiraling out of control. Luke, I can't risk more people hunting for Mark and John. I have no idea what we're facing here. Returning to you, hold your position. Yes, sir. We began moving again, back to base at the best speed Peter could manage. On the display, I watched the line of floodlights continue to flick out. Luke, sit rep. Uh, lost more lights, just two left on this grid line. Eve said she tried the thermal imaging. I heard her voice in the background, fast and rising, frightened. Luke, what's going on? Weapons fire in the distance. Two bursts from an MK-17. I froze and stared in the direction of the sound. On my tracker, their signals vanished. I dropped to one knee and scanned every patch of light ahead through my scope. Peter was at my shoulder, gasping for breath. What the hell was that? He said. Was... Quiet. I cut him off. Luke? Eve? Someone answer me. No reply. There was nothing on any line but static. My heart was racing. I looked at the grid, where the floodlights went out. There was a second line of failures forming now, a new path which led away from the lift, towards us. I wavered. Despite all my training and experience... I was afraid, and it was breaking me. I'd faced death before, taken a bullet more than once, but this wasn't the same. I felt as helpless as a child, crushed by a simple primal fear as old as our species itself. The fear of what might wait in the dark. I don't want to die here, I thought, regripping my weapon. Do not die here. I will not die here. Peter, listen to me. Breathe. Put your hand on my shoulder and do not let go. We are not going to stop again from here to the lift. 
Put all your lights out. Do not activate comms. We are silent from here on in, understand? I began to speak, then nodded instead. Hell, I thought. If I was scared, I couldn't even imagine what he was going through. Go. I chose a route which swung away from the disabled lights, taking us to the lift in a wide loop. Every few seconds, more floodlights cut off on the readout. Their path halted at our previous location, then began again in a scattershot pattern expanding from that point. A search pattern. It became a race, soaked in sweat and shaking with adrenaline, every muscle burning, waiting every second for something to come out of the dark. A minute out, the closest light to our left failed. I swung us away from it, weapon up, arms shaking, pointing the barrel into the black. Peter was in desperate shape behind me, a stumbling weight hanging on my side. I saw the lift ahead. Every nearby floodlight was down but two. We were close, maybe 30 seconds. Another light went out, 50 feet behind us. Peter! I was gasping for air myself. Straight inside. 20 seconds. Get it moving. I'll cover the door. Only one light remained. 10 seconds out. Peter's hand came off my shoulder and I turned just in time to see him die. It lasted only a fraction of a second. Something grasped him from the shadows, but I couldn't make it out. Only the way it held him. It crushed him, as if he were trapped under limbs of perfect glass, breaking and tearing his body like paper. He came apart in a dozen pieces before he could even cry out. I stumbled back and fell, blood spraying across the ground and sinking into the biofilm. My weapon hung limp in my hand. I hadn't even fired wouldn't even know what to shoot at. I scrambled away on all fours, then back to my feet and through the lift gate, finger back on my trigger. Then I was in, one hand working the panel and the other trying to keep my weapon. The lift began to ascend. I left them all behind. I sometimes wonder, is guilt why I'm doing this now? I say I'm posting this because it's the right thing, the moral thing, to give people the truth. Am I lying to myself? Is this guilt masquerading as righteousness? How would I know? In the grand scheme of things, do my reasons even matter? All that matters is the truth. People have a right to know what is coming. More than that, they have a right to know what is already here. I set the lift to max ascent speed of 30 miles per hour. It would get me to the surface in 18 minutes. Exhaustion took over. I slid to my knees, pulled off my helmet, and poured water all over myself. I was on my knees in the corner, forehead against the cool metal beside the comms panel. Every detail raced through my mind over and over. Every mistake and failure and misjudgment. I started getting intermittent comms around two miles. I kept trying and finally got through at one mile. I can't remember my exact words. I told them I was the only survivor, that I was alone, only minutes away. Most of the replies were lost to static. Then Joanna's voice came through clear, repeating a question. Matthew, main carriage weight reads 900 pounds. If you were alone, what are you bringing up? I remember those moments. Confusion to realization to horror. I knew there was nothing in the cargo hold. It had been sealed when empty. There had been nothing in the carriage either. No nothing I could see. Matt, can you hear me? I reached for the control panel, typed in the emergency overrides and detached the cargo hold. I felt the weight go, heard a crash from below as it caught the tunnel wall and spun into the darkness. 
I switched the screen to lift diagnostics. The carriage weight was still 900. I stopped my ascent, closed my eyes, breathed. It grew quiet as the lift settled. I remember I was still on my knees, one hand on my weapon. I waited, listening. A creak from behind me, the tiniest shifting of weight in the left corner. I spun and opened fire, the sudden roar of my rifle deafening in the enclosed space. Then I was in the air, stunned from a massive impact, then falling, striking the tunnel wall and falling with the lift going past. I should be dead, and it was luck that saved me, nothing else. My left leg went through one of the support bars that had held the cargo bay. As I swung back, my flailing hand grasped metal and I held myself there. My gun was gone and I couldn't feel my left arm. Then the pain came. Waves of blinding pain from my shoulder across my torso. Blood rushing down my chest. I could see it pouring into the dark below me. As I fought to pull myself up, I heard and felt more movement above me. A sudden jerk as weight was lifted. Then, the scrape of something on the cables. Shaking the entire lift back and forth. Whatever had been in there with me was climbing the rest of the way out. Matt... Uh, what's going on? We hear weapons fire. Joanna's voice. I realized only a few seconds had passed since I'd opened fire. Matt? Then I cut out for the last time. I heard gunshots from above. Many gunshots and what I think were screams. I don't know how long it took me to get back up. I was faint and in shock from blood loss and trauma. Don't even remember activating the lift. There was a hole clean through the ballistic plate in my body armor and shoulder. My MK-17 was on the floor, crushed like a soda can. The areas above were a disaster. Dead bodies and destroyed equipment. Adam and Joanna, what remained of them, were in the control room. The huge airtight steel door had been torn out of the wall and tossed aside like it was made of cardboard. I was the only one left, and the thing I had brought to the surface was gone. Out of time. Out of time. I have to move before they find me. We'll post again if I make it. And that's it. That's the end of the story. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, let me know. Uh, leave a comment or subscribe if you'd like to. Uh, if you want to do more than that, though, there is a Patreon. I'd really appreciate it if you consider it. You don't have to do it, but consider it. It just helps make this channel run a little bit more smoothly and helps ensure that I can keep doing it. So I hope you have a good day. We'll see you in the next one.